G'day and welcome to Occupied, your fortnightly podcast for all things occupation and occupational therapy. Just wanted to cover a couple things real quick before we get started in this week's episode. And the first one is otpodcast.com. If you're a fan of Occupied and you're looking to find some other OT podcasts, jump over to otpodcast.com and check out the range of podcasts run by OTs around OT topics and clinical areas that are related to occupational therapy. Um, Feel free to tag that, share that website with your friends, and let's promote OT within this podcasting space. The second is the Occupied community. Now, what I want to do with this podcast is add more value. So if you jump over to brockcook.com, there's a little email sign up, and if you sign up to that, you'll get an email, email inviting you to our exclusive Occupied Community Facebook group. We have many of the guests from the podcast in there, as well as conversation, sharing resources. We really want to build a community around this thing that will help improve everyone's CPD and learning. So jump over to brockcook.com, sign up to that, join the Facebook group, and let's build a community around this podcast. All right, on to this week's episode, we have the amazing Leah Foreman, who is a, a COTA and a currently an OTD student in America. We discussed everything from what is a COTA, because it's something I'm not overly familiar with in Australia, right through to mindfulness, meditation, all kinds of different topics. So please enjoy. This was exceptionally fun to, to record this one, so I hope you guys enjoy it. Someday we'll make it out there. I don't think it'll be next year like we were planning, but soon. Should have come out for the conference and it could have been a tax write-off. I know, right? I need to uh, make it through school, all these conferences. So I went to our national conference in April. Yep. And that was my first conference. So that was amazing. I would, the um, one this year or next year is in New Orleans and I would love to go. I got friends that are trying to convince me to come on my it's a long yeah. way to go for a conference. It, yeah, it is. Um, yeah, it is. You'd have to mainly make like a two-week trip out of it to make it worth it, I, in my opinion. But um, yeah, I'd like to go, but it's the weekend after our next rotation ends. Like it ends on a Friday and then I would fly in. It just doesn't make sense. So um, bummed I'll probably have to miss that one, but there's always more. So they you, happen when, every year. When you say rotation, is that placement or is that? Yeah, so yeah. a clinical placement. Mm-hmm. Okay. So There's you, so many different yeah. words I use, and I need to find one. I feel like when I'm talking to somebody that doesn't know a, OT, then I'll say clinicals because that makes sense because nurses do clinicals, right? So it's like a rotation you do in a hospital. Whereas, see, over here, that wouldn't make sense either. No, it would not make sense? <laughs> no, we, wouldn't, we don't call them. I don't think anyone calls them clinicals. No, because we're not very clinical. Like it doesn't have to be clinical. Well, but like, like anyone, like nurses, no one. I don't. I've never heard anyone. Really? Anyone? Oh, okay. Just the placements. That's all yeah, I've, all placements, I've ever heard okay. them called. Yeah. Our official term is field work. Yeah. Which, if I say field work to a friend or a family member that's not familiar with OT, they're like field work. Where you field? Camping. Like, what are you doing? <laughs> yeah. What are you doing? Research. Like what in the field? What are you doing? So I typically it just depends who I'm talking to. Yeah, I've, we we do. I have heard them called field work here, but generally it's placement. Okay, yeah. 
Yeah, my new placement starts in January and then there's a conference right after. So, so I'm curious about the whole OTA thing. Yeah. Because it's not really a thing. Well, I mean, there are like OT assistants, but it's mm-hmm. not, as far as I know, it's not like a formal qualification or anything here. Okay. So how, how did you how did you get into it for starters? How did you how find did I that? find an assistant yeah. program and choose that? Or how did you find OTA in general? Like what made you want to do that? How I found OT was I actually um, my undergrad degree is in fine art painting. Oh, cool. Um, I've always yeah I've always been a painter and I got to um, I got started with my undergrad degree and I was kind of undecided. And then I think a year in, I still didn't know what I wanted to do. So I just chose an interest mm-hmm. um, because I wanted to do my bachelor's, but I had no idea what I was doing. And so I chose fine art painting and I'm happy that I did. But then I graduated and I was like, okay, now what? What do I do with this? And I think my options were to work in a gallery or be an artist. Um, also, I could have worked in a museum curating different things. So I had some options, but none of them really were exciting for me. Um, those were more like side passions and it was like more of a career. And I really wanted to work with people and I wanted to help people. Um, so initially I actually looked at art therapy, mm-hmm. looked at art therapy, looked at music therapy and I was like, okay, this could work, but I still feel like there's more to this. Um, my grandmother who I adore, she's my bestest friend. She is a nurse and she has kept her license current. Um, She's 84 now. So she keeps her license current every year. And she's just really passionate. I think about what she was doing. And she said, you should look at OT. You would love OT just like blatantly. And I had no idea what it was. No idea. I was like, okay, what is this? So I went and did some shadowing and I loved it. I thought it was really cool. It was more involved and personal for me than physical therapy was because I was able to kind of see a PT in action too during those shadowing experiences. And, um, I just loved it. So I went to try to pursue that via the master's grad school route and realized I had not a single science credit to my name because I was a (laughs) painting major. (laughs) That's fair. I can see how that might happen. Uh-huh. Yeah. So I'm tallying up all of these credits and prerequisites that I need. I'm like, this is like a whole nother degree that I've got to get before I can even apply for graduate school. Um, so I found the assistant programs and I kind of looked at the curriculum for the assistant programs. Like this is every class that I need for a prereq essentially. So I was like, okay, well let's do this. And then I'll apply for the graduate program after the CODA program. Um, so I did that. And then in the meantime, I became a nurse's assistant as well. So I've kind of just always had multiple things going on. I kind of tend to throw myself into things. So you're a nurse's assistant and an OT assistant. So I was, I don't keep my CNA license, um, current anymore because I have no need for it. But throughout CODA school, I did work as a nurse's aide, um, which in the one hospital was more of a rehab assistant, your rehab, typical rehab aid, but uh, mostly CNA work. Um, but I loved that because I got to see what I was learning in CODA school and yep. then learn about what I was seeing because that was in a rehab hospital. So yeah, it was yeah. more rehab based than your standard acute, acute facility. 
Do you think so? You think that made it easier, like the actual school mm-hmm. side of it? Yeah, for me it did. I'm very visual and I'm very hands on. So when we were learning about trachs and ventilators, I was seeing it, and yeah. it wasn't scary to me because I had already experienced it. And I know a lot of my classmates. It was kind of like I have to help them do what with a what coming out of where and they were kind of concerned about all these tubes and and I had seen it so it was kind of more yeah I'm just very visual so it was cool to see it and then learn about it and then vice versa too I really really liked that and the director of the CODA program actually encouraged me and other students too to do that to seek out the CNA program and and work while you're in school so I loved that so you finished the CODA program is it CODA program? Yeah. Yeah, it's program? an associate's degree. So it's like a two-year associate's in occupational therapy. Okay. And then did you work for a bit before you went into – because you're doing an OTD now, aren't you? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Did you work for a bit in yeah. between or did you go straight into the OTD or what did you do? I I worked and I worked for about three, three and a half years um, before I was accepted to a program. Okay. So that being said, I applied every single year um, between the assistant program and this entry-level OTD that I'm in now. Mm-hmm. And it just took me three and a half years to get in. So uh, in retrospect, I am happy that that timeline kind of worked the way that it did. And I had those three years of experience. Um, but it was tough for a while. I was like, am I meant to go to grad school? Am I meant to get in? And and all of that but um eventually i got in and now i'm here so it all worked out and how long's the otd how long how many years does that take it's just under three total years i think okay. it's um i'd have to go back and look at the months so it was so, two years for the assistance course yeah mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and then another yep. three three and a well just under three for the the yeah. otd yeah. So that's a long slog. It is. I was talking to my mother a few months ago and we were like counting up the years that I've been in school, like from <laughs> kindergarten until now. And it's like, holy cow, I've been in school for, I think, 25 years. I mean, without, you know, those three years that I practiced um, between, but yeah. So I don't know if I'll go for another degree after this. I think I'll be done. I don't know. You, we'll you might have to. I you won't know what that. to do with yourself. I know, right? I might not know what to do with myself when I'm not in a program. I may have to go back in some some regard. PhD. Yeah, right? You <laughs> teach somehow. How am I not going to be in a school build, building or program? I don't, think, I don't think many people actually ever think about that, the fact that they go from primary school to high Well, you guys have different levels of school to us, but yeah, we, yeah, pretty, yeah. we pretty much just go to high school, primary school. Or other, yeah. way, other way around and then into uni or into a trade or whatever people do after high school is up to them. But yeah. I don't think anyone, well, I don't, not anyone, but I don't think many people actually think about how long they're actually in school because I know that yeah. there's a lot of people and there's, there's research coming out about that transition from like uni to full-time work. And I think for a lot of people, that's probably the first time they've ever not been a student. Right. Which I right. think would just add to well, – that's something I'm not I, – I, granted, I haven't read a lot of the research around new grad transitions because 
it, it's not an area that I've really had to look into yet, but uh, I, I do wonder whether that's something that's taken into account because a lot of people like in Australia anyway will go straight from high school into uni. Right. There, there's not – some people might take one year off or – but and, you know, there's, there's obviously some people that either are going into university later in life or – have already done a university degree and then worked and then are going back for a change of scenery. But there is a large percentage, especially in our OT, in our OT course anyway, the one I, I work in, uh, that, mm-hmm. that comes straight from high school. So they literally go from one student role into a different student role. So by the end of how old would they be then? If they go straight through uni, they that's that's 16 years as a student. Right. Yeah, it's a large chunk of your life um, to go through the whole education gamut. And I think when you're a new grad too, that's the first time you're actually a full-time adult. Yeah. Like you've been a student for so long and yes, you have bills, but sometimes parents kind of help with that transition and they're still kind of helping them through that. And then now you're working full-time, you're having to prepare your meals on like a scheduled basis to prep for working full-time. And it's just such a large transition. Um it's and even the transition between high school and, and an undergrad degree is so heavy. Um, so I just, well, I think a lot of people, I don't know if it's, if it's the same in the States, but a lot of people here will, you know, move to go to, mm-hmm. to university after high school. Cause it's not too like the regional town that I live in is lucky in that we have a university in it, but there's not many that do. So right. if the, like, say, for example, if my uni didn't exist or the regional unis didn't exist, you'd have to move to a capital city to go to university. And that's what a lot of people used to do. They used to have mm-hmm. to move. So that transition, I know some of our students are from the town, uh, so they, they might still be living at home. Like they'll go straight from high school into university. They're still living with mom and dad. That's probably right. a much a much smoother transition than uh, we get a lot of people from sort of very rural areas, very regional areas who move in. Okay. Um, and we get the uh, the odd one or two that have moved from other states to come in to do the course and that kind of thing. I, I think the transition for those students would be a lot a lot more complicated, a lot more complex than, you know, the ones that live here already. Whereas yeah, yeah I don't absolutely. know. I don't know how, how many sort of OT schools you guys have or like how I guess how close they are together, like whether people would have to move a long way. Yeah, there's quite a few and it depends on the state that you're in. Um, California has a ton. Um, Colorado has kind of one and a half. They have one residential program and and they have one that's, yeah, there's (laughs) the one where um, it's through Creighton University and they work through um, Regis and it's more of like a hybrid program. So there's only the two in Colorado. And then to my knowledge, I'd have to check on that. Um, And then in Ohio, I believe, I think there's three or four. So it just depends on the state. There's quite a few nationally, but I think it would be, I don't know how rare, but for me, it was not a possibility that I could stay and go to school. So where where about you? Currently, we're in Denver, Colorado. Um, we moved back, my husband moved back in June and I moved back in August and that's where we were living pre OTD program. 
um, OTD program is in San Diego, California. So we were there two years for my didactic portion, and now um, we're back in Denver. And I just finished my first placement there, and then um, I actually get to move back to California in January, but this time in the Bay Area. So I get to explore up there for three months. What, what, what does an OTA do? Yeah. And, what, and I guess what's, what confuses me is because it's not – so we have uh, rehab assistants, and I don't know if they're similar, same sort of thing, um, but uh, I know like I've worked with rehab assistants. I've worked in predominantly mental health settings, and I've had a rehab assistant in a couple of those settings, and they would essentially – one of them would – some of them in one setting had very specialist skills, so we had an artist in residence who – would do a lot of art with uh, like the online, uh, not the online. Why am I, everything's online nowadays. With the know, right? inpatient, <laughs> mm-hmm. very, very different to online. Uh, the inpatient uh, consumers would do art with them and uh, essentially was teaching them about art as a therapeutic, you know, as a, a part of therapy. Uh, and a couple of them in that same setting had lived experience of mental illness. So they would work with whoever around and, and sort of help them through using their own experiences of, you know, the system and um, mental illness and that. And in the other setting that I had a rehab assistant, she would do a lot of the, I have a feeling you guys probably would have looked at it more as a diversional therapist because she used to do a lot of the diversionary program. So she would run a lot of groups and activities and that sort okay. of stuff um, on the ward. Is it anything like that or is it completely different? It is a little bit like that. And I don't know um, what sort of training the aides go through um, because we have rehab aides too. We have OT aides and PT aides. Mm -hmm. um, And a lot of times they're working to get their hours to go to PT or OT school. Um, And so the OTR will be sending them to grab things for them. We'll be helping them set up to do an exercise with the patient, but they're not actually using, using their clinical reasoning to provide treatment. They're more of a true assistant or aide. Um, CODAs or assistants, um, once you go through that associates program, you are linked up with an OTR. So there's the OTR to OTA relationship, and that OTR supervises you. Okay. So the OTR, where the OTR carries their own caseload, the OTA carries their own caseload, but it's kind of also the OTR's caseload. So the OTR will come in and do evaluations, re-evaluations, we'll write goals, we'll write the plan of care. Um, and every OTR to OTA relationship is different. Um, I think that you really have to be not lucky, but I think that a true mentoring, um, like growth environment, OTR to OTA relationship, I feel like they're very rare. I've had some great ones and I've had some not so great ones. Mm-hmm. Um, but essentially I'm working on as an assistant, I'm working under an OTR. I have my own caseload, but as soon as I have a question or I'm not sure how to progress a kiddo or I, or any client really, I've worked in different settings. Um, then you can go to the OTR and say, I've hit this roadblock. Um, we're working on this goal right now. They've met this goal. Can you come in and reassess and write a new goal? Um, so there's clinical reasoning, but it's not as independent as I'm finding I'm mm-hmm. having to be as now 
a soon to be OTR, OTD um, practitioner. So, which has changed too. OTAs initially were looked more like an aid, looked more like a rehab aid. They were just bodies that they were trying to get into um, actually psychiatric and mental health settings because there weren't not enough OTRs. They yep. couldn't get OTRs in fast enough. So they um, created, I think in the 50s, this OTA position um, to fill those, those jobs. Um, and then slowly but surely, there was like some conflict over whose role is what, why do we have two roles? What's happening here? And so that's when they started to get more. Um, they actually increased the education on the OTR side to make them more skilled in the evaluation and the supervision and mentoring piece. Um, that way, OTRs had a defined role. I think they, from what I've read and learned over the years, is they kind of felt threatened at first by the OTA role. Yeah, I was, I was about to ask that because it seems yeah. – it seems like I reckon if that rolled out here, mm-hmm. that's what it would be like. Right. I think a lot like of why? OTs would get Why do we up. need these humans? Yeah. 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 Why do we need this role? Am I not doing my job fully? Like, why do you need to bring in another set of people to do the job? Um, but it was out of necessity at first. Um, they needed to get people through training quicker. The original training was like 12 weeks long, I think. Okay. Um, so similar to like a nurse's aid program. Um, just to get them into these settings. And then, like I said, then they started to establish the more clear role descriptions and everything like that. Um, so now it's more clear. Now um, I, as an assistant, cannot do evaluations. I cannot do any sort of assessment. So I, so that depends on your OTR too, so it gets a little fuzzy. So I've had OTRs that didn't allow me to do any assessments. And then I had ones who would send me in. I do the assessment and then they gather the results and interpret them and, and tell me what the interpretation is. Not that I wouldn't be able to do that, but it's actually not within my scope of practice as a, as OTA. Um, so when they, cause I'm wondering whether it's, I'm trying to contextualize it in terms of what we do here yeah. in Australia. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Is it, I'm wondering whether it's, uh, the profession itself was brought in to cover a gap that wasn't being filled like workload wise, or if they've split what was being done into the two different professions. So from what my understanding is from what I've again, read and just gathered throughout schooling throughout the years is there was a huge gap in mental health and there were not enough practitioners to fill those roles. And this was in like the 1950s here. And then once the 60s hit, that role was being filled adequately. And so then they started to allow CODAs to work in more general settings, um, like nursing homes or with geriatrics or children and things like that. But initially, CODAs were only meant to fill that mental health need. So what day-to-day, what kinds of things? So at the moment, it sounds like you're working with kids, yeah? Yeah, right now I'm doing consults and doing like fill-in appointments for the early intervention firm that I worked for before I went back to school. Um, So I'm working here and there. It's really hard to work full-time in this program and I haven't been able to find space to do that. So just being involved in this a little bit has been really, really nice to kind of just to keep my foot in the door and keep my mind fresh on it. So with, say, with the the demographic that you're working with, day-to-day, like Mm -hmm. what kinds of things would you do? that say the OT wouldn't do. I'm just trying to yeah, I'm just trying to work out yeah. where it all fits together. 
Yeah, I think there are things that the OTR can do that I cannot do, but there are not too many things that I do that the OTR doesn't do. Does but, that make sense? So, so they can't. So the OT, the registered OTs are still able to, or still doing. You know the very practical, hands-on mm-hmm. work with people, but that's also what yeah. you guys are doing. But you just mm-hmm. aren't doing the assessment side of it, the assessment evaluation yeah. side of it. Right, right. Is it in this setting? It's different throughout different settings, but in this setting, in early intervention home health, yes. Is it? Do you think with the inclusion of an OTA into a setting that it changes what the OT themselves does? Do you think they kind of are palming off, or not palming off, but are handing over a lot of the hands-on stuff and just focusing on the consult, uh, on the evaluation and assessment? Right. So sometimes, yes, and that's typically up to the OTR. So like the OTR I'm working under now, she currently, you know, again, I'm very part-time, but she currently has, I think, two other CODAs underneath her. So she has, again, like two and a half. And um, she is finding, we were just talking a couple months ago, she's finding that she's doing more evaluation and reevaluation to maintain the code as caseloads. And she's really looking at, um, do I need to pass off one of these codas? Do I want to maintain the level of administrative work that I'm doing? Um, do I want to be doing half consults and evaluations for my codas and then half working on my own caseload or what person, like what percentage do I want that? Like, what does that, what does that look yeah. like? Like, what do I want it to look like? And I think that's really hard for OTRs um, to keep that balance because I don't think anybody goes to school to do paperwork. Yeah. And I don't think, you know, that's what and I'm so if you're about, finding like, that. It doesn't sound very yeah. fun. I think I'd rather do right. the OTA and, job. Mm-hmm. And you'll hear a lot of CODAs um, when you're talking about continuing education. They'll say, oh, no, I don't want to be an OTR. It's too much paperwork. Oh, no, I don't want to be an OTR. I don't want to spend my time doing paperwork. And it's true. OTRs do more paperwork. They do a great deal more. Um, you know, I am responsible for my daily notes. Um, and I believe that's it. Um, outside of like asking for funding and writing up letters of justification and, and things like that and communicating with the doctor, um, I do none of the evaluation, reevaluation, assessment paperwork. That's all the OTR. Um, so. It is a great deal more paperwork. So does the OT uh, like supervise the actual clinical work that you do or is it just a matter of you're trained to do it, you do it, I'll check in at the end and see where they're at? So the actual session? Yeah. Like are they watching me treat? Oh, not every time no. but sometimes. No. No. No, I would say um, when I first started, when I was a new grad CODA, I think I shadowed and kind of had more supervision like the first week. But once your OTR feels comfortable um, with you, because you work underneath their license. So not only is your license in jeopardy if you do something unethical, but so is the OTRs. So it's their responsibility to make sure that you're service competent in areas and that they trust you to be administering treatment. Um, That being said, um, I think in the beginning, it's good to have those like one-on-one direct supervision moments. And then as your OTR trusts you, it needs to be a, you know, I trust your judgment. I trust your clinical reasoning. I trust your, you know, ethical decision-making. Um, I will look at your notes at the end of the week or at the end of the day, however frequently they do it. 
and um, make sure that you're on the right track. But outside of that, your caseload is your caseload. Um, yeah. So that sounds that's that sounds fairly similar to like most new grad situations. Even for OTAs, yeah. you kind of want that initially a, a fair bit of support, uh, and then you know it gradually decreases until you're fully independent with it. Right. So with uh, like the example, say that you were just giving with the OTR with say three OTAs working mm-hmm. underneath them, what kind of because I'm I'm assuming that this setup is laid out the way it is to try and increase the number of clients per OTR. Is that? Yes, I think that it increases staff. It increases therapists that are there to see patients. Mm-hmm. Um, CODAs are also paid less. So it behooves a facility to staff equal parts, OTRs and CODAs. Um, yeah, CODAs can get in and get the treatment minutes where the OTRs can do that, but they also are kind of preoccupied with the intake and the evaluations. Yeah. And so, um, so there's, there's reasoning for both. Yeah. So numbers wise, what kind of like for the exam, your lady that's got the three coders mm-hmm. underneath, what kind of numbers would she be carrying caseload wise? Yeah. Um, I believe that she currently carries, I'm trying to think back to our conversation a couple months ago when we were talking about her caseload. I believe she currently has about 26 or 27 children on her caseload. And then she's got the two full-time CODAs underneath her who mm-hmm. will also have anywhere between 20 and 30 um, kids on their caseload. Oh, so she's got 26 then, that she sees for therapeutic mm-hmm. intervention as well. Mm-hmm. Ah, okay. Yes. So, wow. so you can see the strain and the busyness and the, you know, she's scheduling her children's sessions, but then she's also scheduling and, okay, I've got a meeting with my CODA for mentorship. And then after that, we've got two of their reevaluations. So there's three hours that are dedicated hours to her CODA's caseload, not her caseload. Yep. Um, so it, it adds up. And that's why I think um, it's wonderful for OTRs to take CODA's. I feel like it's, I definitely will when I'm ready to after I mm-hmm. graduate. Um, but it can be a lot, especially if you want to have a balance between your treatment and your and your documentation and, and all of that. So she'd be, so 24. Five to thirty-ish each person. So mm-hmm. in theory, she'd have like seventy-ish, seventy-five yeah. on her books. Ish, yeah. Or which maybe more. Sounds like daunting. That sounds like a lot. That's interesting. When we, when we add it up, mm. yeah. Because we don't really have that model. And it, well, it, it might. I, I generalize. It may exist somewhere in Australia, but it's not common practice. I don't think that it does. I was ta- I met with somebody last week who initially practiced in Germany, mm. and she was like, "The U.S. is the only the only country that utilizes CODAs." From what she knew and from everything I've read, I don't. The, I think that the rehab aids exist. Yeah, but I don't think it's like a an academic program to become an official assistant oh, to yeah, an yeah. occupational no, no, therapist. It no. definitely, we definitely don't have the. I think the formalized education side of it. I was just thinking more yeah. of that model of having some sort of assistant, whether it be rehab assistant or specifically an OT mm-hmm. assistant. Obviously, very 
differently qualified to you guys. Um, but I don't know of many places that have that model of the OT just does the uh, the assessment uh, side of things and then hands mm-hmm. off the therapeutic process side of it to someone else. Uh, it's much more common for the OT just to do everything here. Yeah, yeah, um, absolutely. Which is interesting because I'm curious to see I don't, and I might have to look into it to see whether there's any research. It'd have to be cross country research, I guess, um, mm-hmm. to see the differences between the two models and how effective it is. Right. Because it sounds like, it's obviously, a- it sounds like it's increased the number of uh, like clients, I guess, that mm-hmm. each OTR can see. Right. Uh, and it's obviously works out fairly economical for health services to do it that way as well. Yeah. Whereas so in Australia, even... you'd ha- in Australia, you'd have you know, three or four OTRs to do that instead of one OTR and multiple coders. Right. Yeah. It's interesting because there were numerous occasions, maybe even half and half, where my OTR would do the evaluation and the reassessment. But outside of that, they don't really know the client. So I am the one-on-one provider and I am the one coming back and saying, you know, I know you saw this during the evaluation. This is what I'm seeing now a month into treatment. Um, This is what I'm thinking. I'm going to adjust such and such in the treatment plan. Are you okay with that? And typically it's yes, absolutely. Like, you know, your client, you are the one that's been in session with them. Um, So what gets interesting too is when typically the OTR is more of a mentoring role to the CODA and which is really a beautiful thing. I've really enjoyed those relationships Mm. like I was saying, but sometimes you'll get a CODA that has more experience than the OTR does. And that's a whole different dynamic as well. And it's, that's the OTR respecting like, yeah, I've been out of school for five years, 10 years. Like you've got 30 years of experience, like teach me. And I know my friends that are OTRs are always looking for those relationships, whether it's a CODA or another OTR. Um, You know, 10 years out of school isn't always, I mean, you're experienced, but not as much as somebody who's been practicing for 30 years. Mm. um, In in one of the settings that I had, the rehab assistant was like that. She had been in that place, I think, like 27 or 28 years. And, you know, I was at the time five years out of uni i'm like yeah i'm like i know on paper you are <laughs> like under me but i'm happy to take your lead on things until i you know find my feet yeah um and and she was she was amazing she came to me seeking like supervision and that kind of stuff for certain things which was fine but she worked really independently um I just tried to support her in what she wanted to do. She had a lot of really good ideas that she wanted to try with the the guys on the ward and that kind of thing. I'm like, yep, sweet, let's have a look. If it was something overly complex, a lot of her stuff, like I said before, was more diversional. It wasn't overly clinical. Um, So it didn't require a lot of clinical input. But if there was things that I thought there might be clinical complications, I used to go along with her and do it with her, even Mm -hmm. just in the initial stages so that I could see how it worked and that kind of thing. Um, but yeah, I, I think I just, I know there would be a lot of OTs that would have issue in kind of having a power dynamic like that. Yeah. Where like, you know, I spent, especially in Australia, I think where 
the OTAs wouldn't have a formal qualification, like a, not a like a university level qualification, right? So it'd be very much like I just spent because we do we have undergrad OT here. So I just, mm-hmm. I just spent four years at university and, you know, you haven't been to university kind of thing. Like, why should I be? Right. Yeah. yeah. I, I could see that being a potential barrier. Um, yeah. That was the struggle initially here. This, that, that role and that struggle between, okay, who are you and what is your role if it's not a full OTR? Um, so, so why are you here? In, is the sort of OTR... Coda working together model, is that something that is kind of really common in the States? So it depends on the setting. So when I worked in, um, I worked in a long-term acute care neuro um, rehab hospital, and then I worked in a skilled nursing facility and the setup in those settings where you you have to have an OTR sign off on your notes regardless. So in both of those settings, um, well, in the one, just any OTR signs off on your notes. They read it, they make sure it's cool, and they sign it. And then the other setting, you're kind of matched up with an OTR. And in that setting, you're matched up with an OTR, but there's really no mentorship at all. They just read your notes at the end of the day, and they sign them. Um, and it wasn't really a setting or culture where, where I was working where I could have asked for mentorship. It was like, as a CODA, you should have your treatment skills up enough if you want to work in this setting to do exactly what I do minus the evaluations. Um, So there wasn't too much difference between the CODA and the OTR, which is great for the facility too, because they're not having to spend time on mentorship hours and everything. I'm essentially a lower paid body that's doing the same thing. Yeah. Um, Now in home health and early intervention, that looks different. I matched up with an OTR We have meetings every single week where I go through my caseload. I go through any problems I'm having. I go through any sort of um, treatment that I've tried that wasn't going so well or a new treatment I wanted to try. A kid needs funding for something. We would look into how to get them set up with some sort of equipment. Um, And my OTR would be there for all that mentoring. I can also call her any time of the day. I can text her any time of the day. Like it's a more mentoring connected uh, relationship. Yep. And when we would have these mentorship meetings too, she would ask me about some of her kids and say, you know, you tried this with this client and it seemed to go really well. Do you think that if I have a kid that has this going on, mind you, I've never seen her children before because I don't have to be in her sessions at all, but we're kind of mentoring back and forth then too, which is really cool. Um, so that I just, I loved that relationship. And I, like I said, I had the non-nurturing, non-mentoring OTR, OTA relationships um, before. And then I had the ones that were super mentoring. And I, I, um, I just think that there's a reason behind taking OTRs and I'm not too keen on the acute settings. I'm just, it's not my, my scene, but um, it's probably why I gravitate towards the other ones more is because there's more of that interaction and and mentoring so yeah so it seems especially for the the coder anyway like that relationship would probably be one of the biggest things about whether well probably one whether you're going to enjoy the job but two i guess mm-hmm. how successful and the the client outcomes i think would have a a fairly strong link to that relationship between the otr and the ota yeah. Yeah. And what was really cool too, um, 
is not only would I have meetings with my direct OTR, but we would have OT meetings where the whole OT team gets together and does kid talk. So you're bringing, I love just kid bringing talk. a client to, yeah. So we call it kid talk. Okay. <laughs> so you call, yeah, kid talk. I just so picture a group of adults me. sitting around talking like children. Like no, yeah, oh, like stuff. baby talk yeah. or whatever. No, yeah. I'm like, that's no, an awkward I mean, thing to do. We call them kid talk because you talk about kids. So, um, yeah, so you would bring your, bring your kids to the meeting with all the, the whole OT team and having like 12 minds brainstorming and critically thinking and using their, their, all their different levels and different types of expertise and experience on one case is so powerful. Um, so I really enjoyed that as well, which did not happen in the acute settings I was in, in either. So, um, yeah, I enjoyed that as well. So what's what's made you take the extra plunge into going back into OTD? Because it sounds like COTA is all of the good things about OT without all of the less fun things. Yeah, the paperwork and everything. Yeah, yeah that's always like I was saying, that's always a lot of CODAs who I talk to. I'm like, why would you want to go back? Yeah. It's just more paperwork. Um, well, I always wanted to do the full degree, like I was saying, and I just wasn't able to after undergrad. Um, and I just found like I was seeking out continued ed courses and spending a decent amount every year on, we call them con ed courses to like further my education and be more effective and knowledgeable. And I just always felt like as we're doing the evaluations, like my OTR would let me jump in and do most of the evaluation too. So yes, I was working as a CODA and she was my OTR and like helping me clinically reason through different things. But I felt like I was doing a lot of the job too, because she was such a great mentor. She allowed me to really learn along with her Yep. Um, as well. So I felt like I was kind of already there, not fully, obviously I have a lot to learn still, um, but I always wanted to do it and it was a goal of mine and, and I did it. I don't know that um, my life would have been worse off had I chosen to continue practicing as a CODA and not go for it. I'm still in the profession. Um, I just think it's also opened up so many venues of access of connection and education. And, um, I'm really, really happy I did it. So I, I look at the entire profession differently than before I went back to school. Um, I just think I'm more mindful of client-centered care and occupation-based treatment. And um, I'm just more, my clinical reasoning has just shifted in a way that I, I didn't expect. Um, so I just, I look at clients now from all these different facets that I did not look at them before with, um, which I think is good. I always want to be growing and evolving and, and, and learning, but um, it's also inspired me too that when I do eventually take a coda of my own to help mentor them in that way as well um, and bring that, that to them because continuing your education is not for everybody. There's a ton of codas that that works for them. They're amazing at what they do. They don't need to go back. And if they don't want to, they shouldn't go back. They should stay in that role because that's what works for them and they're amazing at it. So I think that there's a place for each. Um, so, and that's part of the debate that we've got going on now here too, with the increase to requiring a doctorate degree to be an OTR 
and I've the heard, coda degrees big, yeah big it, yeah it's a hot thing right now it's a hot thing right now i was actually talking with sarah a little about bit about it a couple weeks ago um and they're moving coda to uh bachelors okay. instead of an associate so um i've got my pros and cons and my talking points on that but it's it's a heavy debate feel free yeah i mean Oh, it's hard. Because I think it would be um, interesting, say, for me, say, if I wanted to move to the States. Yeah. Like, should that happen? And I wanted to move to the States and work over mm-hmm. there. Mm-hmm. I'm a qualified OT with the same level right. of qualifications as a coder. Mm-hmm. Like, that, it, work, like, work that out. Like how would that? Like I don't even yeah, think they would know how yeah. to fit that in. No, it, I don't think you. Moment, I don't think that it works out. I feel like it's so just messed up. So like the woman I was talking to that was practicing in Germany before she came here, she had her degree, but then she came here and it didn't count. So she was a full OTR, came here, nothing counted. So she went to a CODA program, became a CODA, and now she's an entry level OTD to get back up to where she was before she moved here. So yeah, there's definitely no transferability of, of um, I think that'll, uh, that'll degrees and like stop a lot of people from moving. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I would love to practice abroad at some point. And my husband and I talk about maybe living abroad eventually. And I have to like look into that. So I have like all this education that I'll have. But what are the requirements in other countries? And well, from my understanding, Australia it's easier to leave. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> honestly, maybe we will. Um, You'll be the so, most qualified person here by the sounds of it. Oh, Lord. Well, <laughs> not with years of experience at this point, too. So, yeah, I don't know. It's interesting because I think some countries it would be a little more seamless than others, but definitely tricky. Yeah, I've never I've never wanted to sort of move and practice overseas, but I was just thinking if I did because I'd heard, like I know people that have. Um, yeah. And I know I was speaking to an OT the other day who's, where's she working at? But anyway, that doesn't matter. But, but she's in America somewhere, but she has her PhD. So that mm. is that sort of similar level as a, as, a, as a doctorate. That's the other thing, I guess, that I wonder if moving everyone to an OTD mm-hmm. is... I guess reducing the value of what an OTD is. Like it right. used like it used to be, you know, let's say five years ago, it used to be like, yeah. holy crap, like you've got a doctorate. That's that's right. a really big achievement. But now it's like everyone that's coming out of uni has a doctorate. Right. And it's like, well, yeah. is it is it the equivalent? Like, is the standard being raised that much that now everyone that's graduating is at that sort of doctorate level that it might have been looked at, you know, five, ten years ago? Or yeah. is the standard coming down so that more people meet it? And I guess that's possibly part of the argument that's being made over there at the moment with regards to moving everyone to a doctorate. Yeah, and I think one of the arguments that I identify most closely is that not everybody wants to get their doctorate. And requiring somebody to get their doctorate to practice in a profession, I think, in my opinion, is ridiculous. Um, I'm in, you know, the program I'm in right now, all of the academic programs are tradi- 
or transitioning to the full OTD mm. entry level. But the cohort that I'm in was um, about three fourths masters and then one fourth OTD students, doctorate mm. level students. And I would talk to a lot of my MOT classmates, my friends, and they had no interest in going the full way with the doctorate portion and everything. They wanted, they didn't want to do research. They didn't want to get into leadership. They didn't mm. want to do advo- like strong advocacy and all of that like that. They had no interest. They wanted to practice and they wanted to be in, super involved and thrown in with treatment. Um, and so I see that. Well, then don't do it. And that's your choice. Um, I was the option, you know, I'm going back to school. I'm super interested in those things. Mm. I definitely wanted to do it. Yep. Um, I actually had a few classmates who started out as doctorate students and about halfway through the didactic portion decided that it wasn't for them. They got, no, I'm not interested in any of the extracurriculum that's being presented to me. I want to do my master's. Um, so it's just tough. It just, when you require something, it sends a heavy, strong message. And, and also on the CODA side of things, making it a bachelor's degree. Oh, I mean, it would have been convenient for me because I would have done my bachelor's as a CODA and then gone into grad. I mean, honestly, if that would have been an effect when I went to CODA school, I would have yep. been great. But I also had classmates in my CODA program. Had it been a bachelor's, they would not have gone. Yeah. They were coming straight from high school or it, they were in their 40s or 50s and it was a second or third degree, a second or third career transition. They wouldn't have gone if it was a full bachelor's. And are we going to lose diversity within our profession because we're shutting people out by raising it to a doctor's level? And then, then our clients are suffering because all of a sudden we're these like hoity-toity doctors that are coming in and that's not what OTs are to me. No, I, but I say I that as a doctorate agree. student too. I say that as a doctorate student too. So it's like, do I have? But I, so I ask, I, I ask you, if the states was master's entry, mm-hmm. would you do a doctorate or a master's? If it was still the was still master's, master's entry, entry. yeah. Um, when I went back to school, you know, a little over two years ago, if those two options were placed in front of me, I would have chose the doctorate. Okay. I would have chosen the doctorate program. So yeah, yeah, I would have because of my career goals. You just wanted to be one of those hoity-toity doctors then. Right, I know. Yeah, I needed that. <laughs> I know. No, but we, I mean, we talk about that. We talk about like you're not, you have your doctorate in OT, but you're not a doctor. Like this, you can identify as that, I guess, but a lot of your patients don't really want to see a doctor. They want to see an OT. And then I want to see a therapist. So that'll be interesting when I start practicing. If I'm in a setting where like that brings people comfort to know that I have that level of education or if it's intimidating. I was just messaging with somebody on Instagram this morning about white coat syndrome and I had never heard of that terminology. It's like white coat syndrome. I think I know what that means, but tell me. And she was telling me it's um, like a fear of wanting to pursue healthcare out of fear of like kind of this intimidating doctor that you're walking up to in the white coat and you're just intimidated so you just don't go you just don't seek out care yeah um yeah i thought that was really interesting i had a nice chat with her it's interesting if you've worked in like a a really acute medical setting or even just been in in one of those settings and just watched 
probably mm-hmm. slightly different over there because everyone, like you guys all wear uniforms. It depends. Like in the hospital, um, in the hospital. Like you guys wear scrubs. No one wears, like OTs don't wear scrubs here. That seems, Some settings that's they do, very yeah. Strange. Yeah. No, I mean here. There, no one. We oh, don't. We don't. No one. No one no. ever. 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 Well, doctors. So like my or like my surgeons, uh, rotation. Right. My rotation in January, people wear scrub pants and then like t-shirts. Yeah. What was interesting is um, the acute setting, the SNF I worked in, skilled nursing center I worked in. Um, yeah, everyone wore black, and then. In the inpatient um, long-term acute, they wanted you to wear street clothes because it made the patients more comfortable. So jeans, t-shirts, whatever you wanted, but no scrubs really. Um, the nursing staff wore scrubs, but the therapy department was encouraged to not. And I think that's that's what I was getting at is that if you're in one of those settings here, it's different because I can see the OTs. They wear a uniform, but it's like a polo shirt and you know, slacks kind of thing. It's not scrubs. Yeah. It's not anything really overly formal. Mental health, we didn't have a uniform, so like I would wear this. Which I think is comforting for patients. Like if you approached me and what you're wearing now, I would feel more comfortable than if you came in in like a white coat. What's next? Yeah. The thing I wanted to talk to you about is your other interests. Yeah. Which is the other thing that was sort of caught my eye when I found you on Instagram. Mm-hmm. Pelvic floor. And it seemed like this yeah. is the weirdest thing for me mm-hmm. having to talk about, not having yeah. to talk about, but the fact that this seems to have come up in my dealings and meeting people multiple times. And I'm like, I didn't even know this was a thing that OTs did. Yeah. Well, you have one too. I know men get kind of like pelvic floor. What's that? And it's mostly associated with like women's issues, but men have them too. We do. Actually, there's a physio at work who's doing his uh, PhD research around, I'm pretty sure it's male-specific pelvic floor issues. Yeah, we need more of that because most of it's um, women-oriented research. So, yeah, for me, it's a modality. It's a tool that I can have that hopefully someday I would like to use that to bring to moms, to bring to mothers after um, childbirth, before childbirth, while pregnant, um, to help strengthen those, those muscles and those um, structures because so many moms, I think it's like 70% of women um, have urinary incontinence issues. And it really it affects all of your occupations and your roles. You have to plan to bring different um supplies with you in your purse to manage all of it and you can't laugh without something happening or sneeze without and it's just like i can't believe it and um what i learned through this this certification that i have now um and there's three levels to it so i'm on level one i have a lot to learn mm-hmm. um and i've only utilized it with my family and myself too so i have not used this with clients yet um but i just did not realize how widespread it was and how treatable it is and how easy it is to treat. Um, so that's been really interesting to me. So is the um, qualification an, an OT specific thing or is it? No, no. no. So the, it's based, the technique is based in yoga um, and actually weightlifting. Arnold Schwarzenegger was a big proponent, a big uh, advocate for it because he's all about the muscle balance. You know more about that than I do with maybe. your powerlifting maybe. Possibly. But 
he was really um, spoke out against um, just being in balance in your muscles from lifting um, and the importance of looking at um, all of the structures, including the pelvic floor. And so it, the technique is based in some of some lifting, some biomechanical um, elements and ideas, and then some yoga breathing techniques. Um, and it's essentially using um, the diaphragm and, and different breathing patterns and methods to eccentrically contract all of the abdominal muscles and the pelvic floor muscles to strengthen them and normalize tone. Um, so the class that was taught was actually taught by a physical therapist and my friend who's a chiropractor introduced me to it. Okay. So there was a, um, they've taught OTs before. I think I'm maybe one of like five in the U S that's certified. And then, um, a lot of PTs, athletic trainers, Pilates teachers, yoga teachers. So it's not an OT specific, um, certification. It's just something I was interested in and, um, women's health and maternal health interests me generally. So I, don't, I, I, took I it. don't know if you've heard, like, cause I did, uh, one of these with Melissa LaPont, which is, episode I read about six. it. I haven't listened to it yet. Uh, and she's, she's a, a friend of mine, a good friend of mine. And mm-hmm. I think with this, and then I saw your Instagram and I'm like, this is like, it's almost a sign. Maybe I should start working in women's health or something. But it's emerging. Yeah, because I saw. I think the emerging. actual photo that I saw on Instagram that you posted was of a set of hips or something. It was a bone. Yeah, and it reminded me of the photo that I have of Melissa on the pot. Yeah, oh, that no, was a book. Oh, really? Had a pelvic oh, yeah, floor. I guess they are similar. There's an artist I found on Instagram. She does like all anatomical structure art, and I love her stuff. Yeah, I think it's like Emily Paul or Emily K. Paul um, art. And so, yeah, I used her art to promote the blog I did on it, which um, I'm having trouble. That's supposed to be a series, and I'm having trouble with the second one because it would be so much easier to verbally explain all of this than to type it out. I know. I've been talking. Uh-huh about it so um yeah i really want to get that second part out there but it's a treatment method that i can't do a blog post and you can do yourself you really need to work with somebody to get that sort of treatment so i've had a lot of people reach out to me like how can i treat this and like you've got to get into a session i can't write a blog and have you treat yourself so i'm i'm trying to sort that out um currently is blogging something you've done a lot of or is this a new project for you yeah I started the blog about a little over a year ago um I believe on a break from school I'm always searching for things while I'm in school to fill my time so hyperactive kid yeah well like the student (laughs) schedule I was working full-time working you know 40 50 hours a week so to go to school schedule like yes it's busy but it's busy in a different way it's busy in a hurry up and wait kind of way. So you're studying really hard one day and then the next day you take your exam and you have six free hours. Like what am I supposed to do with myself? So the blog started as more of like a personal blog. I wanted to write about different adventures my husband and I were going on and send it to family, um, family that didn't have access to social media, whether that was my grandmother or I don't know. I just wanted to have a creative outlet in a different way and then share our life with our family. And then when I went to conference in April, I was like, Oh, I could 
have this be an outlet professionally too and talk about topics I'm passionate about and connect not only with my family, but with other professionals and other students, et cetera, et cetera. And then it just kind of evolved um, into what it is now. And I've had to give myself some grace because I will have a three-month period where I crank out five blogs. And I think the last time I posted one, it's December. I think it's been two months since I've written anything. Um, And so I've got to give myself grace that like this is not going to happen on the first of every month, every month. Mm -hmm. This is something that when I have a topic I want to talk about and share, I'm going to post it. Um, But that being said, like my current placement or my placement that I just finished, no way, no way I could have sat down and blogged during that placement. And that was like 12 weeks. Um, I was working anywhere from like nine to 13 hours, um, you know, with driving and paperwork and all of that. And I was exhausted sitting down to write a blog. I couldn't, I mean, I I guess I could have, but I don't know what the quality would have been like. Um, So I was talking with Sarah then about considering podcasting. Sarah Not because, yeah, yeah. From OT for Life. So not because it's easier. She wanted to make sure I understood that, that there's still time that goes into it. I just feel like even throughout my placement when I was so busy, I didn't have time to sit down and read blogs, but I could listen to podcasts while I'm busy and be like learning and engaging that way. So I feel like I found it to be so helpful and accessible during my busy seasons of my life that it seems right now for me, it seems more accessible than the blog. That being said, I talked to some of my friends and classmates who read the blog and told them I was considering transitioning to more of a podcast and their feedback was no absolutely not you cannot because they <laughs> they really like Thanks the for blog. keeping they're an open like, mind classmates. I know. <laughs> well they're they're not no. they're not podcast <laughs> listeners. They don't they don't listen to podcasts. So they were like no, you need to keep up with your blog. And if you do a podcast, you have to keep blogging about the same topics because I screenshot your blogs and refer back to them later. I will pull it up and show a colleague and share an idea with them. I'll like physically send them the link, which you can do with a podcast. I don't know if they, they realize that you can share a podcast. Um, And you can still put, you can still put all those notes into a podcast. Yeah. 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 So I kind of see the benefit of both though. Like I could see a short, shortened version on the blog pointing to, if you'd like to know more, Yeah, here's a podcast where I can really break it down verbally. Um, so I'm still pondering all of that. We'll see. And that's it's something that like you could do both. Like years ago, I tried to blog and I just, yeah. I'm not a writer. Mm-hmm. Just not that. It, it doesn't, I like the idea of it. I just. Yeah. When I sit down to actually do it, I'm like, ah, oh, this isn't for me. Whereas this, I'll talk for hours. Yeah. We've already done a webinar today and now we're doing this podcast yeah. and I'll probably, you know, do something else later on today. Um, yeah. Like uh, I can do this for hours and I think this would take me less time than writing a blog post all up like with the recording and the editing and everything. Yeah. And maybe that's because I'm slow. I don't know. I'm a slow typer. or not a typer, but I'm a slow blog writer. I don't know. Um, I, I find this 
yeah, yeah this this suits me better. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah. I, and, I think- and I think I can then hit a range of topics. Like if I was blogging, it would be about what I know. Like right. I, the collaboration piece interests me so much too. Yeah. And that's, that's, like that's where I think like the podcast 40 people is good. I want to sit down and talk to like this and people that have my same interests and people that have opposite interests and collaborating on a blog, you can do it. I've done some, mm. um, it's just slower mm. and you get more like cookie cutter boxed information into your inbox, which is fine. But then you put it in the blog and it's like, but there's no back and forth. There's no new ideas forming. It's just, Here's my idea on paper, read it, like it or don't, learn or don't. And with the collaboration and the podcast, like we can go anywhere. Yeah, pretty much. And that's what I encourage you to do. I, yeah. I, I, that's how I learn as well. So like mm-hmm. I learn from these discussions. Like there's no way I'd sit down and write a blog about pelvic floor or whatever, but I can yeah. sit down and talk to someone about it and learn about it. You yeah. know, a fraction of the time that it would take me to research it, get familiar with it, understand the concepts, learn what actually happens practically, and mm-hmm. then write a blog about it, trying to show other people about it. I'm like, that why would like I do weeks. that? Yeah, that was three months for me. Yeah. But whereas I can talk to you or I can talk to Melissa and it's it's using a platform that I have to showcase other people's smarts. Mm-hmm. I don't. Yeah. Ha- I don't have to pretend that I'm the expert in it because I know I'm not. Like I like the tech stuff. I like mental health, and I know a fair bit about that stuff. I know occupation based practice and that kind of thing. And I can discuss those concepts with other people from their practice setting, and then that builds on my knowledge around that because I'm then going, okay, so. Occupational science, occupation-based practice, et cetera, et cetera. Here's what it looks like in this completely different practice area that I didn't even know existed until two months ago kind of thing. Right. So, and the whole, my idea behind the podcast is these are the conversations that I learned. So, even if I wasn't recording this, I'd Mm -hmm. still love to have these conversations and I always have. Right. Because that's how I learn. But now I can record Mm -hmm. them and put them out into the ether and yeah. maybe someone else will take something from the conversation that, you know, it might be the same as what I take from it. It might be something completely different based on their previous experience, et cetera, et cetera. But I'm hoping that they will be able to take something. And obviously people are because I get a lot of feedback um, from different people, especially the last episode I just put out. I'm getting a lot of feedback about that one. don't know why. Hmm. Controversial maybe. I don't know. Maybe. But uh, yeah, it's 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 a medium that I think is accessible to everyone. Yeah. But the other thing is, like, you don't nece- you wouldn't necessarily have to if you didn't want to make it a regular podcast. You could do like you can embed uh, like audio snippets into a blog post to try and shorten it up. Like it wouldn't necessarily yeah, have to be released as a podcast. It could just be embedded yeah. audio into your blog post. Like yeah. here's the topic, here's some general blah, 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 type it out, and then here's your audio. Listen to that. Yeah, that's interesting too. That's interesting too. I am just mulling around all of these ideas. I think so my brother, the mosh pitter. <laughs> the mosh um, he, he shall yeah. be known from here on in. He, exactly. He is a... Um, 
sound tech, like audio engineer. Nice. And so I think what's going to happen is he's going to get me set up and I'm going to kind of record something silly with either him or my husband just to see how it feels. And then go from there. Like if I'm not into it, I'm not going to do it. But um, if it feels like it's a platform that would work for me, I might do it. We'll see. Do it. Yeah. Just Yeah. I know. I know. Just try it. I feel like everything, if I just try it, usually I love it. So like if I have the interest to pursue it, then you just have to try things on before you make decisions. Yeah, I think it's a good, I think they're just different platforms, blogging and, and podcasting. They're just different. And I think that you have access to different things with each one. Yeah, definitely. I just find probably because I'm not the most expressive of writers that I can capture someone's passion behind a concept or an idea or a thought better with audio. Yeah, yeah. Um, whereas even myself, like even if it's something that I'm really passionate about and I'm talking about it, I wouldn't be able to write it in a way that would kind of convey that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's just not a not a strong point of mine. I feel like in order for me to get the passion behind it too, it's like a 10-page blog and nobody wants to read a 10-page blog. They want like the cute bullets and the short points that you can get like quick and dirty information from, which there's a place for that too. Um, I've got a couple of blogs like that, but sometimes a topic, um, needs more of a light shown on it than just a quick blog. So, so we'll see. Yeah. And then I think there's, there's, uh, I personally like the long form information, whether it's blogs, podcasts, whatever, like I, even podcasts, like there's some podcasts that are like five minutes each a week. I'm like, what's yeah. the point? Like. I yeah. would rather listen to and same with blogs. I'm like, if I'm going to sit here and put the effort into reading something or trying to learn something off this blog, like I want all the information. Like I don't okay. want this. So you're little, on the other side of yeah, the spectrum. I'm on the other side. Like I, nothing frustrates me more than you get to the end of a blog. That's like half a page long. And you're mm-hmm. like, well, that's just described around the outside of the issue. I already knew that. Like I want something that gets into the meat of it Mm because I don't like, I love learning. Mm -hmm. So I like material, whether it's text, audio, video, whatever it is to really get to the heart of something and present something new. Yeah, tell you something new that you didn't know before you showed up. So looking at the same issue from a different perspective or something completely different that I've never even considered or never even thought of before. Like that really, that's what gets gets me going. That's what I, I love. Little snippets. And that's what annoys me with, you see, it's it's all the clickbait stuff nowadays. And it's like the top 10 things for this and oh, top God. five things for this. And I know a lot of OT oh, websites do that now as well. And I'm like, but one, top for who? So I guarantee you yes, my, they don't apply top. to everybody. Like <laughs> top for who? And I hate the ones, and I don't like the the H word, but I really, really, really despise the blogs where it's like top ten best ways to do this. For who? That list is going to be different for every single human. And to tell any human that this is the best way to do something is only going to promote shame and comparison. And I don't have 
the resources to do it that way. I can't get a gym membership. So how can I work out at home? Or, you know, I can't eat organically. I can't afford it. So to like say that this is the only best way, I'm getting a little heated about this, but it's just, I don't like it. That's good. We found your passion. Mm. I just don't like things that say like, this is the way. The only way. And I think that's it's that's a conversation I've, that's come up for me quite a few times at work and and on podcasts and just in general is one thing that I've slowly been working out that really annoys me mm-hmm. and I've pulled myself up for doing it quite a few times is speaking in absolutes. Yeah. So this is the way, this is the only thing when really it's not. It's it's yeah. our, It's our way. Mm-hmm. And it may work for some people, yeah. But it's not the way, and it's not going to work for everyone, yeah. So I, it's something that I've been trying to be very wary of in that, especially seeing, like, there's quite a few people that listen to this. So I'm very cautious to try and say with the last episode that I released, which was about um, the gender, dif- uh, the sex difference. In the You're profession right, yeah, yeah. And, and whether it's that's a good list. or bad thing. Mm-hmm. I, like I was trying to, and hopefully I did, was trying to be very cautious of say, of not saying this either this is an issue or this yeah. is how we fix it or this Just is what open. we should be doing. Yeah. All I wanted to do was present an alternative view to make people think. I would rather say something that was really out there and roundabout, random matter of fact, and have people think, then try mm. and convince someone that this is how I think. Yeah. Like, I'm Just staying open for, yeah. and curious and a student instead of the knower. And I was just reading in one of the books I'm about to finish, but that your truth is not the truth. It's your truth. And the more you can stay open and from that curious mindset, the more you're going to learn. I think it, the, the portion of this book that I'm thinking of was um, – how to build empathy skills. And the skill was perspective taking and being able to not look at that person's situation through your lens, but try to really, you're not going to be able to put on their lens, but to try to take off your lens at least and be open to hearing how they perceive what they're going through. And if you're closed and you're the knower and you're the OT with the education, you can't be that open and curious um, practitioner. And so, um, that man, but that is, that is a skill because we're taught, this is the truth. When you're growing up, you're taught, this is how the world works. This is what's true. This is what's not true. And then when you get to be an adult, you're like, what do you mean? They told me this is how it worked and this is not what's happening here. So it's being able to relinquish those beliefs or at least be open to, um, integrating others. It's hard. No, hundred percent. And that's, that's where I think I actually think OTs at a fundamental level are really good at that. Mm-hmm. The mm-hmm. issue I think is we don't we either aren't aware of that or we're trying to fit in with a I guess a health system that wants us to be something else. Yeah, I think I see both. Yeah. I think I definitely see both. Because I, and like lenses and looking through things, like I've always, not always, but in my adult life, which probably only started a couple of weeks ago, um, <laughs> I've, always, I've been under the sort of 
guys that there is no such thing as absolute truth. Right. Truth mm-hmm. is a perspective. It doesn't matter what mm-hmm. it is. History is a perspective. History is a truth. Yeah. Truth is a perspective. You need to, and that's fine. That There's nothing wrong with history. There's, like, as a concept, not in general, because there's plenty of yeah. bad things that happen in history. But, <laughs> um, but uh, I think in order to fully get the, the most out of that information, you need to understand the perspective. Mm-hmm. So it's all well and good for me to say, this is how you fix anxiety, for example. This right. is what you do. Yeah. For someone to just take that as gospel and go, yep, that's he said so, that's how he, That's what you do to fix anxiety and then go and do it with a thousand other people and only half of the time it works and then they go, well, he's obviously wrong. When like, what you, happens too when they implement it and it doesn't work for that patient and then they say, well, I must not be able to be fixed. Well, and that's the, that's the other side of it, but... If they had, and I'm not trying to put the onus on the other person, but if I, if they took the time to understand my perspective of that truth, mm-hmm. it might be that I had really bad anxiety, I tried this and my particular anxiety or whatever was causing my anxiety was fixed. Now that then opens up a whole different gamut of of thoughts that you can have because it's not necessarily this is how you fix it. It's this is the situation. Now, if I find someone who has a similar situation, it's still not a guaranteed, but in that particular situation, it might be something that might work as opposed to just blanket applying it to all anxiety. Yeah, the protocol approach. Exactly, and I think that's where a lot of medical model professions don't seem to take that they're very prescriptive which is that very that concrete speaking in absolutes Mm -hmm. you have a broken leg this is how we fix it yeah whereas i think this is one of the reasons why i don't think ot fits in that medical model and we've got so much more to offer even if we don't see it sometimes uh is uh, i think we are really good at being able to see perspective if we take the time to actually do that Right. But I think a lot of the time OTs get themselves in trouble when they either find themselves in a workplace where the pressure is that they don't have time to or they, the mm-hmm. process isn't looking at trying to understand yeah. a person's perspectives um, or they, for whatever reason, there's going to be people that aren't suited to be OTs. I'll say it. It's out there. Oh, but in every profession, there's exactly. good... And I don't really love the labels of good and bad because what does that even mean? That's my subjective good I and say, bad. I but say effective and non-effective. Are, okay, I like that. So yeah. there are effective nurses and there are nurses that are not so effective mm. and there are police officers that are effective and not so effective. And so there's pastry chefs who are effective and not. So I think and in then every there's profession me you're who would going just burn to have. <laughs> I think in every profession you have that. Um But for me, what I'm learning about empathy and perspective taking is that it's a skill and it's a skill that you first of all need to have awareness that you may need in your practice. And then it's a skill you have to practice like repeatedly with every client, with your mother, with your sister, and you have to build that skill and you're not always going to get it right. And sometimes you're going to get it wrong. And that's kind of what I was reading in this book is like, you're going to mess this up and you're going to really suck at it at first. But that's a good thing. 
that's a good thing because you you have some like a baseline that you can grow from. But I think the initial thing is just practitioners being aware that they need that skill um, and not kind of bulldozing clients' needs because they think that they see the issue before really delving into what the client's issue is. And I think that that if you uh, the therapists who are able to do that effectively are the therapists who then don't have that uh, I guess hierarchy view of like like we were talking about earlier about I'm the educated OT mm-hmm. you're the client I think yeah. one of the I can't I have no idea who said it but I heard it years ago and it's always stuck with me is that the client is the expert in their own situation yeah yeah they and that's, say that that's in, always oh. stuck to me stuck to me mm-hmm. stuck with me even um, yeah because it's true and like mm-hmm. and I found that I, I think I related that better to myself when I was going through th- things myself and it sort of clicked to me that no one people yes understand what it might might be like what I was going through but no one understands completely so there's a lot of things that people would suggest like oh do this do that and I'm like that's not gonna work yes that might have worked for you that might have worked for your mum it might have worked for Joe Blow down the road it's not gonna work for me and even like my instinctual sort of shut down of the idea I couldn't even immediately explain why but I just knew that that wasn't going to work later on when I actually reflected on it and thought about it I could probably go okay well that's not going to work because you know I'm like this this is how I process things blah 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 blah. but you knew it didn't resonate with you exactly they said that and you're just like immediately you felt it that just does not resonate with what I need exactly and I think we don't give enough – I don't think we give enough credit to intuition in healthcare. Hmm. I, I seriously yeah. – I don't. And like I've done – I do a little bit of reading sometimes. I can't write, mm-hmm. but I can read. Uh, <laughs> and there's a lot of stuff that I've read, especially around some of the old sort of psychology stuff like Jung, mm-hmm. um, even some of Freud stuff about the the subconscious – and how the subconscious interpretation of the conscious, mm-hmm. essentially. And mm-hmm. there's a lot of stuff, especially Jung, uh, like Carl Jung ha- has had written about mm-hmm. intuition and mm-hmm. how important it is to people. And for whatever reason, I don't know why, like most things I can track over history about where they evolve from, I don't know why, but we've now ignored it or, or pushed it aside or... We now have this culture of doesn't matter what you're feeling, push through, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. You know, it's, I, I see it a lot in like gym culture and stuff. Like, you know, yeah. it doesn't matter if you hurt, just do it. Like, and it's, like I'm like, listening that's, to your body that's rubbish. Not- like people are so not in tune with what their body's telling them nowadays, even whether that's, you know, okay, I'm physically hurting, I shouldn't be doing this, which happens a lot. Or yeah. to that other point of that concept really isn't connecting with me. Yeah. Why? Even if it, even if it only triggers a why, that's something. At least then you're thinking about it. But a lot of people will just go I'm eh. checking in and like critically thinking about what I'm feeling inside of my body. Exactly. And what resonates with me and what doesn't. Exactly. But and- I. 
I think we're just so preoccupied with the external world and the ego and hustling for your worthiness. I love that phrase. (laughs) I catch myself doing it all the time. And our self-love and our self-worth is really low, I think, as a human population. And um, I, for, I don't know where the shift was. You're right, though, that the expression of emotion and the being in touch with your emotion can be considered weak. And, um, or that you may have some mental health concerns if you're outwardly sad or outwardly angry, that you're not stable or normal if you say, you know, I had a really angry day today or I was so sad today I didn't get off the couch. Some all of a sudden, and then that's a well. Then you must have this, and I can get. We can get all into the diagnosis culture as well because I have trouble with that. But um, oh, me too. If you've heard any yeah. of my podcast, you'll know. I'm very my yeah. I'm very interested <laughs> in the work that you do in the facility. It sounds like it's more acute. So are those immediate acute? I've done a bit needs, of everything. Are they long term? Yeah. Okay. So I've done. Currently, I've done community. Uh, currently, I'm teaching. I'm a lecturer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you're still practicing as well. No, not at the moment. Okay. Full time lecturing. Oh, okay. What so, a and that was recent ish, right? Uh about a year ooh, a little bit over a year ago. <gasps> There's a gecko on your wall. Sorry, I is got it? excited. I can see it behind your head. Yeah, there is. There he is. We used to get those in California. That makes me miss California. <laughs> um, okay, sorry. Squirrel. Let's like Squirrel, that. Yeah. I love that movie. Yeah. Okay, cool. So what an interesting role. It was it was a big change. And it still is a big change. I'm still getting used to it. Um, but it's it's been a good a good change. But like clinically I've worked in I've worked in acute, I've worked in just normal sort of case management type roles, I've worked in community intensive rehab. Um, I've done some sort of fill in stuff for campus based rehab. Uh, yeah, pretty much yeah. most areas of mental health. Yeah. When you were practicing, did you find a place for mindfulness? That's like the buzzword, and I'm I like it sometimes, and then sometimes I feel like it's overused and watered down. But um, like I, I just got in the mail the other means. day. Do what? I think most people just don't know what it means. Yeah. Well, I got a mailing the other day for an advertisement for a CEU of mindfulness and a two-day mindfulness course on how to use mindfulness with your patient, which I think is great that it's getting light. But then I wonder if you're not mindful in your own life and body and practice, are you going to be able to use, I don't know, maybe you could, I don't know the answer to this question, but the question that came to my mind when I got this mailing was, that was exactly um, my thoughts. Yeah. I'm like, like I, how can you, it's how, it was like we were talking about before, like how can I write a blog post on say pelvic floor health when I don't know right. anything about it? Like, yeah, I could go and into a I course. Do, and yeah, if I do a weekend I course would, though, can I even use that technique? I don't know. Without being mindful myself. Because I've been practicing mindfulness and I've been really like strengthening my meditation practice over the past year. And I'm just starting to get to the point where I can have conversations with people and be mindful within that conversation myself, let alone trying to lead them in any sort of mindfulness path. And I really think that that is a 
skill that takes years to develop. And so the weekend course was like, uh, what, what are you teaching here? I was really curious about it. And that's, I, I think, on terms of like clinical application, yeah. one, one I do think, I don't think you can even get even a remote grasp on what mindfulness is unless you're doing it in some form. Even the yeah. most basic, like, I've got a mindful meditation app on my phone and I do that 10 minutes mm -hmm. a day. Like the most basic thing, even if you don't, I, I don't think you could possibly have any grasp on it unless you're at least doing something. Because at least then it gives you a taste of, mm -hmm. I guess, what, I see the, the levels of mindfulness application kind of a spectrum in that there's that real basic stuff and then there's like Buddhist monk in the hills kind right. of stuff. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. And yeah. somewhere in there is the happy medium that people will, will want and best function at. For some yeah. people, they might be best at that really basic level. For mm -hmm. some people, obviously like Buddhist monks, they, they're aiming for that, that top end like Enlighten, yeah. enlightenment kind of end of and I think I think one we need to be looking at it more like that in that it's not again like we've talked about before it's not something that's sort of one size fits all we need people need to be able to find I, I think we can teach the basic concepts and some really basic practices yeah but I think it's up to the individuals and yes we can support them to do that but i think it's up to the individuals to find sort of where on that spectrum they want to be do yes. they want to be someone who is like really zen and meditates for two hours every morning and that kind of thing or do they want to be like yep i'm really flat out i do 15 minute sort of guided meditation before bed so that i can get to sleep and i can sleep better and i can get up the next day still feel energized and keep going flat out for the rest of the next day. Yeah. The, I think there's a lot to learn with regards to mindfulness, even from just the basic concepts. And I think that's where OT can, I was going to say capitalize, but that makes it sound very sort of like we're trying to steal something off someone, but yeah, like utilize or utilize. Yeah. Um, I, I think we yeah, can, I yeah. think we can be effective or use it effectively, I think being taught, so for a two-day course, in two days, I think you could just barely maybe get just the basic concepts yeah. of meditation, oh, not meditation, of mindfulness. Mm -hmm. And I guess the potential benefits there's a lot of there's a lot of research coming out now, especially with NOT around mindfulness. Mm -hmm. um, the issue is a lot of them aren't using sort of consistent language around the basic concepts, and they're looking at different modalities. So it's hard to like right. pull those different like they're all saying mindfulness, but mindfulness to all of these different papers means something different. Right. So so it's yeah. hard to like you can't really compare like well this person said this and this person said this because One's looking at, you know, mindful conversation and one's looking at meditation. And I'm right. like, one, they're different modalities. You can tell that by looking at them because you're not doing yeah. the same thing. And two, they would most likely in most people be used for different things. 
Right. So does it need to be mindfulness in conversation, mindfulness in pain relief is where I found it helpful um, a little bit in my last rotation, my last, my last placement. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's, it's so emerging that I think it just needs to be more well-defined, but like you're saying, it's such a large spectrum. You can do the Headspace app for 10 minutes a day, or you can travel to Nepal and really get into it. So it's such a large spectrum. And I think what you're saying too, about the client seeking it out and being comfortable with it, they're not going to buy in unless they're seeking out that, that skill. So Mm. I think what I've experienced so far is I kind of start talking about it and introduce it. And if the client's ears perk up and I see that interest, I'll keep going. And if not, I stop. See, the the other thing is, I think there's a lot of stigma even around the word mindfulness. Like I, I think, think people roll their eyes. Yeah, exactly. Like, I get eye rolling. Like they, they picture like the Buddhist monk or like Rafiki from um, Lion King, like <laughs> sitting cross-legged and like, I'm so Zen and they picture that and they are in such a state currently that that seems so absurd that they could ever have that much peace in their lives. Um, I mean, it it seems absurd to me and I I practice. So I just think that's such a leap. So like, is, do we need a different word? Well, that's what I I think. I think one of the issues is, and this has probably happened a lot in a lot of that sort of Eastern, uh, Eastern health kind of concepts is that this is a concept that we probably have been thinking about in some way or another using different language. Right. Like I think the outcome of effective mindfulness is well-being in our language, like comparing the two different languages. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think like when I – I've – I've used mindfulness practices with powerlifters. Yeah, I know, like visualizing yeah. the lift before they go up. Well, I love that stuff. Even that or even just like I've built, I, I've prescribed because um, yeah, yeah. I coach as well, but I've prescribed yeah. using, like you said before, I've used the Headspace app with powerlifters who get nervous. Fine mm. with training, they get nervous in competition. So I'm like, if you do this 10 minutes a day, well, the aim of it or what it's going to hopefully teach you is control of conscious thought or conscious control of unconscious thought. So yeah. your thoughts don't start racing as much when you're in comp because you're more aware of it, you are more in control of it and you don't let them get away from you. Therefore, not as nervous, not as anxious, perform better on the platform. Yeah. And I think checking in with the beliefs and fears that they may have, I think has been really helpful. So why are you anxious? Hmm. Are you afraid of failing? Are you afraid it's not going to go well? What are you afraid of? And then checking in and saying, I'm afraid of that, but that's never happened before. So why am I afraid of that? And then when you get up and you're afraid, you're like, yeah, but none of what I'm thinking is true. So let's do this. I'm going to leave that lie that I've got in my head aside and go for it. Exactly. And that's where I think a lot of like the visualization stuff helps as well. I'm like, you visualize this lift a thousand times. Yes, you've never done it, but your body doesn't know that. You know what I'm thinking is I have a classmate who's super interested and she calls it the mind-body connection Mm -hmm. and it's mindfulness. Mm -hmm. But I'm wondering if mind-body is a little bit less 
Rafiki's than <laughs> picturing than mindfulness. Because um, there's a ton of research too on like the mind body connection, just neurosynapse and and everything like that, and, and neuroplasticity. So and it's actually, it's just focusing your attention. Yeah, it's just paying attention to your body and your yeah. emotions and the sensations in your body. So the bind bind body mind body <laughs> connection might be a more clinical way to frame mindfulness that's not so out there and it could work Uh, another thing like i've personally had a lot of um or or done a lot of looking into use of mindfulness around the concept of minimalism minimalism Mm -hmm. can't speak yeah that's a hard word it is at the at the moment yeah I think minimalist is harder than minimalism for me, but minimalist. they're both lots of M's. Yeah. So we're in the concept of minimalism, which is, and again, I think that's another thing that a lot of people have this sort of stigma in that, like, again, you're going to sell all your worldly belongings and live in a cave yeah. when it's got mm-hmm. nothing to do with that. And I really love the very, at its core, the basic concept of minimalism is to live a purposeful life in mm-hmm. that you are only allowing things into your life that either have a purpose and that purpose might be to bring you joy or it might be to allow you to work or it might be allow you to, you know, bring up your family or whatever your your purpose is. It's essentially being mindful and only allowing those things into your life so you don't end up with a whole heap of extraneous crap in your house and in your life and like it's not necessarily minimalism as in just things it can be people it can be you know Mm -hmm. activities like you can be very mindful about exactly Mm -hmm. with your time you can be minimalist with your time and make sure that you're spending your time only on things that bring you joy or bring value into your life that when i look at minimalism as an aspect uh, sorry um mindfulness as an aspect of minimalism and I look mm-hmm. at those two concepts together, that's OT. Like we're all about meaning and purpose. It's in the definitions mm-hmm. of occupation. So to me, that's how it all sort of ties together. Cause, but then again, that's, there's not, there's a few OTs that I've talked to that are sort of up uh, and aware around minimalism and the values associated with minimalism and that kind of stuff and there's probably a few more of them that are aware of not necessarily the basic practices or processes around mindfulness but are at least aware that it exists kind of thing yeah but it's i don't think either of them are common knowledge and it's even rarer that there's someone that incorporates both well, I'm I'm very interested in both, and they're mm. both very ingrained in my life. But I've never made the connection You're that welcome. they are connected. <laughs> right, mind blown. Um, until I guess though, I've been practicing it. I just didn't realize I was practicing it because lately I've been looking at self worth and self love and consuming things. And when I go to consume something, whether that be a podcast or a new shirt or a hamburger, whatever. I guess I don't really eat hamburgers. That's a bad example. But if you were going to. 
But if I was going to splurge on some food, why am I doing this? Is it because I'm hungry? Is it because I need a new shirt? Or is it because I'm feeling low and this new item is going to fulfill me for that short period of time? And really checking in with what emotion is there when I go to consume something. Um, And for me, I didn't make the connection with minimalism either in OT. But you're so right. Like I started consuming less, mostly because of the environment and what's happening with our overconsumption was my main motivator initially. But seeing that because I have less, so instead of having 10 hats, having three really functional, purposeful hats is it's really OT. It's looking at an object for its purpose and function instead of over consuming to fill those voids. So it's so much more purposeful and functional. I never saw that. And I think combining the two allows you. So I've seen people that uh, would probably call themselves minimalists. Mm-hmm. And the one difference I see is if they're not, if they haven't made or they're not connecting with the sort of mindfulness concepts. Yeah. They tend to be the ones that so would see someone who has 500 shoes and go, why do you need 500 shoes? Instead of someone who I feel anyway, just probably because that's how I think now, yeah, would look at that and go, shoes obviously bring that person a lot of joy, would be mm-hmm. the first reaction as opposed to them looking at that situation through their own lens. It would be that's an indication of how I can see a little bit through that person's lens. Always looking for sort of, I guess, little hints and and things in the environment that can indicate or give some indication as to how that other person's lens is shaped. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. That's really cool. And I remember when because I first made that link, it absolutely blew my head wide open. And I was like, holy crap. Mine open now. I will forever look at the world in a completely different way. Yeah. Just looking at what people consume and how can that point us to their beliefs and values and sometimes spirituality, social skills and participation. And what can we learn just from somebody's consumption and their chooses to consume different things? And like like you said, it may even look at, uh, I was going to say defects, so that's not a good way of saying it, um, like things that they're not happy with. Like they may be consuming, you know, what do you, they might buy 500 hats because they're sad and they think hats are going to make them feel better. Yeah, why hats? Whereas again, that's something as a clinician that I can explore with that person. I'd be like, well, yeah, mm-hmm. one, why hats? Because that's a weird hobby. Um, but two, like, why, like, do you actually feel happy for any period of time after you buy hats? How long does it last? What else can we maybe find in your life or what else previously in your life has made you or given you that sort of that same feeling? Mm-hmm. What other occupations can we look at other than buying hats right. that may be able to be substituted in to fill that same need? This is once once I got my head around how those two concepts connected and I went, oh, man, that sounds like OT. Everything in how I viewed everything clinically, just in general life, like everything changed. 
and I've <laughs> been forever weird ever since. Well, but now we're, you know, now you've got me thinking to back, like past clients and of course I'm in the their weirdness. home. You're spinning <laughs> my wheels here. Yeah, but I'm like thinking back to being in their homes and thinking like, what did I observe that could have pointed me to their beliefs and values and emotional needs, mental health needs, as well as like what I was in the house for. And could that have helped me understand a client in a way that my approach would have changed? I think totally. Yeah, because there's the, essentially there's any observation you make, and you make an yeah. observation like you saw the gecko. Any you looking at the yeah. screen? There's two yeah. observations that, or two things that you can take from the observation. Three things technically. First one and the most boring one is you can take exactly as you see it, what you see. So you saw a gecko. Mm-hmm. You can see my one hat. Yeah. Uh, some cords, some books, whatever else is behind me. The other two things are the deeper things and they're the things that I like to look at. So one, you're going to look at this situation and whatever this situation, this situation being what you're looking at here, is going to make you feel. Judgments, thoughts, ideas, concepts, feelings. You may feel sad seeing my one hat because you feel like I'm a deprived child for only having the one hat and I need another 400. (laughs) Who knows? But it tells you a lot about you. That's the it first does. thing. The other mm-hmm. thing is looking at it and trying to see it from my lens, it'll tell you a lot about me. Mm-hmm. And they're the two things that therapists, aside from the actual verbatim what you're seeing, they're the two things I think therapists need to be taking from any observation more yeah. than anything else. Yeah, I think especially how it makes you feel. And I'm, that's part of my practice right now is – I think my teacher said the other day it was heal or heal thyself. Hmm. So if you're having a conversation and it's bringing up some feelings of sadness in me when the person is obviously happy, why am I feeling that sadness? And that's something I need to look at later. So you walk into a client's home and they have the 500 hats and you're like judging. That's excessive. That's silly. That's excessive. Why do you think that's silly? Why do you think that's excessive? That might bring that person joy. Exactly. Maybe their father collected hats and they inherited those hats from a father or an uncle that means something to them. And yeah. Ooh. Okay. Exactly. And that's that concept of almost it, not eternally, but always looking for self-awareness comes again back to mindfulness like that's essentially yeah, that's, that's, see, that's, that's the definition of, them, of mindfulness that's exactly me. yeah that's exactly what yeah. mindfulness is it doesn't yeah. in the end it doesn't actually matter what modality you're using it could be meditation it could be like you see those things on tv where there's a what do they call them a smash room where people go into a room and smash things with a hammer that can be mindful this might be a cultural difference i've never seen that before Have you? No, no, they set up breakable things and you go into the room and yeah, you smash Yeah, they have like up. a room oh, Lord. that you can just wow. go in there and like smash things up. I've seen okay. it. I saw it was on TV the other day. It's an American thing, I thought, because it only seems to be on American TV shows. If it's on cable, I don't watch it. I try to steer clear of the cable. But that's very interesting because that's super, maybe that's meaningful to go smash things up. It keeps whatever at bay that they're trying to combat or brings them closer Somebody maybe who doesn't feel brave feels brave smashing things up. Or, or it could be cathartic. Like I know yeah. like even like music is always the big example that I give because music is something that everyone has their own opinion. 
everyone mm-hmm. thinks everyone else's opinion is wrong because it's different to theirs, <laughs> and everyone has a different effect on with different kinds of music. And this is an exercise I, I ran with my students this semester is I had my little Bluetooth yeah. speaker in the middle of the room. I got them to close their eyes, and I played five different songs. And after each song, I had to write down like what effect it had on them, whether it was calming, alerting, yeah. etc. There was the range of effects that the different songs, and it was everything from like jazz to heavy metal to I can't even remember what some of the other songs was like acoustic, like Jack Johnson type, like chill, yeah. chill out kind of stuff, like a bit of everything. The range that it has on people, like for me, really loud, heavy, screaming, I find that really <laughs> relaxing. Like if I'm stressed or angry, that yeah. chills me out. Huh. I love things like Jack Johnson from a, a musical skill point of view. I can't listen to it for long periods of time because it just irks me. And I can't explain it. I don't know why, but I know yeah. a lot of people that would listen to that. Like if you said Slipknot or Jack Johnson, which one's going to be the calming oh, Jack, music? Jack Johnson. I always say I love every type of music besides heavy metal. I just can't do it. Exactly. So Whereas I'm the opposite. Mm-hmm. So, heavy metal scares me. It makes me feel really scared and uncomfortable. <laughs> so, and you find peace with it. So that's just that this is a prime example. See, and now it. next time you hear heavy metal, you'll be like, what is this telling me about myself? I'll try it. I mean, in high school, I did listen to like Trapped and Breaking Benjamin, but that's as far as Hardly I get down heavy. The, Down, Yeah, that's about as hard as I get. That's going to be the so, modern day classic rock. <laughs> right? <laughs> so, yeah, how interesting we both have different reactions to that but that's and, and that's and that's just the example that's the example i use because everyone knows what music is there's going to be that same yeah. thing for everything and it, again then ot's can look at it from a sensory processing point of view and yes we can add some science to this you know mm-hmm. warm and fluffy thing that most people think mindfulness is when really it's not it's just a, a, a science that most people don't understand yeah especially seeing i can look at most concepts within occupation and occupational science, incorporate some things like sensory integration, and I could almost fully explain, if I really needed to, the reactions people are having with regards to that. But from a conceptual point of view, I find that minimalism, mindfulness together, pretty Mm -hmm. much sums up OT in a lot of cases. And then I have my opinion yeah. about some other things. It's but. like an extreme activity analysis where you're looking at physical, emotional, mental reactions mindfully. And imagine yeah. if all of our activity analysis looked at emotions and values and that sort of thing, like, you know, they probably should. That makes me tear up a little bit. I think that's really beautiful. But there's <laughs> such... There's such an aversion to feeling and looking at those emotions that I think that's the aversion to mindfulness and the aversion to going there is somebody walking into a house and seeing those 500 hats. They don't even realize that it makes them feel sad and angry because they're not willing to go there. So I think that that's a skill all on its own that, you know, I'm, I'm just learning over the past year. So I didn't even realize how numbed out I was before all of this. And so that's really hard and you have to be open to it too. And not everybody is. No, 100%. And I think yeah. I think that comes back to like what was, you were saying at the start with regards to 
we live in a culture where people aren't open. They don't talk about their feelings. They don't talk about what's going on. And I see the mindfulness movement, especially, kind Mm -hmm. of being, I think it's one of those things that, well, even in Western societies, has been around in some form, probably a very different language, forever. But it's kind of been pushed to the side a bit, and now we're going, oh, but look at this language that these Eastern health sort of practitioners have been using for thousands of years. Let's try that, even though it might be exactly the same stuff that we did 50 years ago. Yeah. But it's almost like we've rebranded it, and now Mm -hmm. it's making a comeback. And I think what the opportunity is, is, yeah, there's, I think the opportunity's there, especially while there's momentum in this being picked up. There's opportunity for us as OTs to jump on and like I was explaining before, like, boom, this latches really well into a lot of our core concepts as a profession. And boom, this is how we can utilize this as a modality as well as an outcome. So, you know, mindfulness can be the outcome of what we're doing and we can also use mindfulness to get you doing whatever you need to be doing. It fits perfectly with OT. It is OT. It just, Mm -hmm. it makes sense. And it doesn't, I don't, granted, I don't have an experience in every practice area, but I can't think of a practice area where there wouldn't be some kind of mindfulness linked in. Now that I'm getting experienced in it myself, I look back on different treatment sessions and I see so many missed opportunities, whether it was my adult inpatient rehab, whether it was my neuro setting, skilled nursing, home health with early intervention between the parent and the child and bringing in techniques there. And then the placement I just did with, with an orthopedic outpatient, there's opportunities in every setting. A human's a human, no matter how small or small or big or adult or neuro, you know, typical or atypical or whatever. So I think every setting. Huh? I thought you were going to drop some Did Dr. I? Zeus. Was that some <laughs> What is that called? A person's a person, no matter how small. Yeah, that. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Maybe Dr. Yeah, Zeus was I mean, an OT. Humans, human. I love Dr. Zeus. I do. That did slip out. I do love him. Um, yeah. But I think that the application is really widespread once we get past that initial aversion. Um Cause like I said, I would try to take some patients there just in like being mindful of the pain that they were currently in and they did not want to go there. And that's, that's where I think, I think that's where the real, I guess the future of activity analysis might, could possibly go for OT. Yeah. Yeah. In that traditionally it was exactly that. It was, here's an activity. We'll break this activity into parts. We'll grade it. We'll grade them back into it kind of thing. Um, exactly what you said is I think most people have that aversion to looking inwardly, whether it be at pain or emotion, feelings, trauma, et cetera, et cetera, because it's hard and it hurts. And even as a species, we're built to avoid pain. Like we right. have a, a nervous system that's designed to move ourselves out of pain before we even feel it. Like right. evolutionary, we are about as pain avoidant as you could possibly be built. Right. And I don't think that is just physical. I think emotionally uh, and, and neurologically, we, we have the same 
I guess, evolutionary evolutionary traits in that way. We don't like to. No one likes to be in pain. Well, I'm sure there's some weirdo out there that likes to be in pain. Uh, but I'm sure there is a culture for that too, yeah. But um, I, I think avoiding it is is what we do. And I think that's where we might be able to, coming back to what I was saying about like the possible future of activity analysis, is it might be a matter of graded exposure. Graded exposure is already a thing, but like graded, I guess, mindfulness exposure mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. in that we'll expose you to this tiny little bit of mindfulness practice. Mm-hmm. It's not going to be as painful or as uncomfortable as you might be if we just dove straight in. And then once you get your head around that and you're feeling pretty good about that, we'll increase the difficulty a little bit. And it's the same thing about how we learn anything. Like no one ever has learnt meditation by sitting there and just meditating for two hours a day. Won't happen. No. Like you might start with five minutes. And yeah, then that. and then after ten years you might get up to half an hour. Like who knows? It's it's a slow skill to learn. It is, yeah. And I think that is us grading that sort of exposure to a mindfulness practice because it's hard to control that big organ thing in between your ears. It's mm-hmm. a it's a powerful pullback. Yeah. So it, I think we need to take it slow and we need to not – I think it's hard. I think the language that we use, I will very rare – like I've used those concepts in clinical practice. I've never – well, not never. I would rarely refer to it as, oh, we're going to do some mindfulness because of the stigma around it. Yeah. Whereas if I go, I could say, I could describe it and someone would be more willing. I'm like, we are going to teach you how to better control your conscious thought, your unconscious thoughts. And they'll go, oh, yeah, sweet. That sounds science-y. Yeah. And, And it's practical. It's like, oh, okay, yep. So I get anxious because these thoughts keep going around in my head. You're going to teach me how to control that. Whereas if I go, I'm going to teach you how to be mindful and be like, what the hell is that? I don't want to be mindful. <laughs> yeah, that sounds difficult. I don't want to do it. Mm-hmm. So I think yeah. the, the language that we choose is also very important and how we implement it. But I think that, again, it's going to come with practice and it's a very, it's a very new, it's very new to the profession, I guess. So it's going to yeah. take a while for it to kind of embed into the profession as well. There's a few people that, you know, may already have their head around it and see the links with the profession that can probably push that process a little bit faster so that, you know, we can kind of, so I guess, stamp our name on it. But it's going to take time and I, I think we have to kind of let it. No, I don't think it's something that can be forced. I think it's something that needs to evolve naturally. Um and I think it's such a beautiful tool that I don't even know if I want to stamp my OT name on it. I don't even know if I want OT to claim it as a profession. Okay. But if a practitioner feels that they have that skill, that they can hold that space for that client in that way, I think that's beautiful and they should try it. And if you're successful with it, then I think you should teach other OTs to use that modality. Um, but I also don't think it's meant for everyone. I know 
you know, the teacher I work with is wonderful, but there are some teachers that I would not mesh well with and they would probably actually cause me harm if they took me into any sort of mindfulness practice. So I think the teacher needs to be aware, the OT needs to be aware of, are you harming or helping with this technique? With all techniques, you've got to be aware of your skill. It's everything. Yeah. You've got to be aware of your skill level, what the client needs, and if you're helping or harming. And I think that comes back again, come full circle again, back to about whether or not you can use this clinically without doing it yourself, like on yourself, with yourself. Because I think there's a lot of clinical modalities that OTs use that they don't use at home. Oh, they never would. A lot of assessments, a lot of, you know, tools, especially if, you know, working with kids and that kind of stuff. Um, Like there's stuff you wouldn't use at home unless you have kids and then you may use those sort of things at home. Whereas mindfulness is one of those things that I think is a bit – not necessarily all encompassing, but I think it it, it it inserts itself into everybody's life at some point, whether they know it or not. Um, right. And it can have an impact on everyone's life. And I think even if you, I, I, I'm of the impression, because this is how I started, even if you don't use it with clients at all and you just use it yourself, you're going to be a better practitioner. A thousand percent. A thousand percent. And that's where we get into the empathy and the perspective taking and what are your triggers that you're having in a session? Why are you getting frustrated with this patient? Mm. Why is this patient pushing your buttons? This one patient you've got on your schedule, you're just like, oh no, you know, I've got Steve later today. He's going to send me for a loop. Why? Steve's Damn goal Steve. is not to send you for a loop. You know, he's a patient. He needs your help. That's why you're his therapist. Why is he pushing your buttons. So like that perspective too, are you frustrated because you're not making progress and you feel like you want to be here? Like why? Um, that introspective thought too, I think is really important. Um, but I just feel like I see that a lot. People have these clients that are like, this is my one challenging button pushing client right now. Like, well, why? Damn Steve and his 500 hats. Right. Just upsetting me everywhere. That's <laughs> <laughs> too funny. Yeah. The mindfulness stuff is something I really wanted to get into with someone that just hasn't been the right person. So I think you you are the right person. I'm still so new with it too. I just it's I'm learning everything. But you're day. open to it. And I think that's the yeah. the difference is there's a lot of people that are just like, oh, this, you know, that's crap. Yeah. I think it can be kind of looked at as like foo foo and yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, man, when I first started looking into it or first started hearing it, that's probably that was my impression as well. Like I've never heard of a power lifter that meditates, so <laughs> I am an enigma. Yeah, yeah. So and the fact that you're sharing that with your clients too, your coaching clients, awesome. It's good and it helps. I'm like I can't I may not understand every aspect of what it does, like from a scientific point of view, but I know from a correlative point of view that it works. Yeah. And the athletes that I have used it with, it's worked. Yeah. So even from that alone. Everything's hokey and hocus pocus until I see results with it. And then I'm like, oh, okay, well, if it works, I'm going to do it, even if it seems a little weird. 
And that was the same yeah. thing with like mindfulness. Um, it was actually the same friend who pushed me and encouraged me to do this podcast was uh, the one that I f- first introduced me to mindfulness. Ah, uh, sorry, to minimalist minimalism. Yeah. And like we did a month long minimalism challenge mm-hmm. where like day one you threw out one thing, day two you I've threw out that. two things. Yeah, I've seen that. So by the end of it, like, but I, I kept going at the end of the month, like, because I had so much shit in my house. I think I ended up throwing out like 700 and something things. And wow, it's one of those things where I'm like, yeah, originally I started because I'm like, I get a lot of crap. The place could probably do with a, a cleanup. I don't need all this stuff. But then the actual dependence and the link and the, I guess, almost the the freeing up of yourself that happens when you get rid of that stuff. You don't get it until you've done it. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, anyone, like, I'm not going to push it. Anyone who can't, brings it up, like I'll, I'll happily share my experience of doing that, but I'm not going to push other people to do it. I'm actually going to do it again in January and see what happens. Now that I've got yeah. less stuff, I'm going to try and get rid of some more stuff. So Yeah, every time we move, I just find myself purging pretty much half of our stuff. And I so then I'm trying to be more conscious of what I'm accumulating and consuming mm. versus just like purging every so often. Yeah. It's like, okay, I need new t-shirts. Let's buy three really good quality t-shirts instead of 10. Yeah. Lower, medium quality though. Yeah, it's tough. And that's kind of, yeah, I, I think even just that process of being more consciously aware of that. Like I'm not consciously going... I don't know if I can buy this. Like I still, man, I, I'll spend money when I get it. I'm really good at buying stuff. <laughs> yeah, we all are. But I'm a bit more conscious. Like you said, like I'll buy, say like especially clothes, like I'll buy higher quality clothes that's going to last longer as opposed mm-hmm. to going out every few months and buying, you know, a whole heap of just cheap shitty shirts and shorts and stuff. Yeah, yeah. So... And throwing away a lot of stuff that I just don't wear or will never wear again. or Like you forget you have. Yeah. I like unpack a box and like this has been moved three times and I haven't opened it. <laughs> what is this? What is don't even open it. Box? Throw it away. No, no. I just, well, I like I, I haven't opened the box in 10 years. Then obviously I don't need these things. Oh, gosh. That'll but be me. That'll be me in January. That's a, that's a process. Good fun. So... All right, great. Thanks well, for having me. No, you're welcome. Is there anything you'd like to plug, shout out, your Instagram, anything where people can look you up, shoot you a message for anything you want like that? Yeah, I kind of get messages on all different platforms. I was on LinkedIn earlier and had them, and I get them Instagram and email, but easiest way to get a hold of me is either through Instagram or my email, ot.leaforman at gmail. Um, and the Instagram handle is at life's occupations. Um, and we kind of just share and talk about all sorts of general OT concepts. The whole floor is kind of open. I don't really focus on a certain population or topic. I like to kind of talk about it all. So it's a very entertaining Instagram. Like I said, that is how I initially came across you when I finally decided to start an Instagram for the podcast, but Yeah. uh, yeah, no, it's very, very good. All right. Well, have a good rest of your day. I will do my best. Thanks again for for coming and having a chat. It was so much fun. Yeah. Thanks for having me. We'll talk soon.